And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Okay. I'm not sure how I did it. So this this stream apparently was scheduled for tomorrow. I guess I clicked on the wrong day on the calendar when I set this thing up. Welcome everybody. How's everybody doing today? It is, for those of you who don't know, it's National Cereal Day. I had my Cocoa Puffs this morning, along with some bacon. So I'm all set and ready to go, and we are loaded. Uh, of course, uh, that uh, that shot there of the trains... Uh, for those of uh, for those of you who are not familiar, these are these are from the Thomas the Tank Engine set. That little green one that's still in the packaging. That is a Percy with an incomplete paint job. He is missing all of his stripes. Which means he's going to be very, 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 very valuable at some point, one of these days, maybe. Or maybe not. I don't know. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jason Hutt. I am the editor here at SciFiForMe.com, TV, and SciFiForMe Radio, and... And TV. Dot two, we are broadcasting live to our usual YouTube and Odyssey. And after having a conversation with Matt Kadish over the Salty Nerd Podcast, we are also streaming to our Twitch channel today because uh, Matt uh, brought to my attention an article, I believe it was from the Washington Post from, from back a, a little bit a while ago, saying that Twitch was no longer enforcing their exclusivity rules that were in their their terms of service. So we're going to make we're we're going to see what happens today. Uh, so there is that. I want to give a shout out to everybody who's listening to this as a podcast. We've got people uh, popping up on the map in Czechia, which uh, I believe is the former Czech Republic. Good to have all of you with us. If you are with us, in replay mode, whether in a podcast or on video, uh, you're always welcome to leave a comment. Of course, if you're with us live, you can jump in the chat on any of the channels and uh, join the conversation. We've got email, live from the bunker at sci-fi-for-me.com. We've got a Discord server where you can join the conversation there. Plenty of li- <laughs> lively, uh, lively conversations there. <coughs> So today what I thought I would do is do a little follow-up on a few different things that have been going on here the last few weeks uh, just because 
stuff keeps coming up, and I am making a pile what Rush Limbaugh used to call a stack of stuff. I'm making a stack of stories with a connection to AI, and I'm sure that we will be doing another AI-specific uh, conversation here very soon because there's some stuff out there, scary stuff. I ran across an article. I sent it to David Luxton. I, we've got to have a conversation about it. Uh, apparently... They are in the process of working up an AI that has the ability, and I and I I need to I need to check and see if this is one of these things where it actually has the ability now, or if they're working on it, they're developing it. <coughs> where if you look at a photograph, you look at a picture, you look at an image, and your brain your brain stores that image. And then we hook you up to a bunch of electrodes and diodes and whatnot, and you think about that image, this AI can read those uh, brain waves and recreate the image what you're thinking about. And... My brain automatically goes to Stargate, <coughs> to Star uh, uh, Star Trek, various different places where the one of the one of the members of the crew is on trial for a crime, right? And they use memories, they use a brain scan, a memory scan to recreate the events, and every time that stuff has been faked. And I'm sitting here and I'm watching that. I'm reading this about about an AI that's being trained, programmed to read our brainwave activity to recreate things what we remember. And I'm thinking, well, of course, nothing could go wrong. Now... <laughs> You contrast that, <coughs> excuse me, you contrast that with the AI from Firefox, for example. There's a movie, Firefox, starring Clint Eastwood. There's two books. And in this, in this story, the Russians have come up with this really sophisticated, high-tech fighter jet. And one of the things that is part of the technology of this plane is that it's got, uh, it's got, equipment in the helmet that will read the thoughts of the pilot. So it basically cuts response time down by a couple of seconds, but they're they're very crucial seconds. If you're in the middle of a dogfight and all you can do all you have to do is think about the missile that you shoot instead of pushing some buttons, that could give you an edge. <clears throat> so the Firefox has the ability to read the pilot's thoughts, but you must think in the Russian. Now I can, that Probably a useful application of that kind of technology. But I don't know that I want an AI... I don't know that I want an AI poking around in my head. But I'm, I'm compiling a list of stories, and there are some interesting stories, and there are some scary stories. <coughs> 
about things. Uh, and I mentioned David Luxton. He was on Blast from the Bunker last Wednesday night. We were talking about UFOs, and I want to start there with this follow-up. Steven Spielberg has a theory. Steven Spielberg has a theory about these unidentified flying objects that have been showing up here over the last few weeks. Not, not, not distractions at all. <coughs> Pay no attention to what other things are going on around here. But these UFOs, he thinks he's got a possible maybe explanation. This is IndieWire from March 5th. Christian Zilko writing this, uh, this article. In recent weeks, American skies have been filled with various balloons and other <coughs> excuse me, unidentified flying objects that the U.S. military has been forced to shoot down. Among them, a balloon from a ham radio club, by the way. <coughs> the lack of information provided has led many curious Americans to draw their own conclusions about the mysterious objects, including Steven Spielberg. Uh, and they're going on the whole thing about, you know, career-spanning investigation, you know, interview, blah, blah, blah. He says, I'd never seen a UFO. I wish I had. But <clears throat> it's interesting what else he says. He says, I think the secrecy that is shrouding all of these sightings and the lack of transparency, I think there's something going on that just needs extraordinary due diligence. I will agree with him on that. If we have a bunch of things going on here that are not explained. These, these more than likely are experimental uh, aerial vehicles of some sort, whether they're drones or they're piloted vehicles or something. That's the, that's the easiest explanation, right? Occam's razor, right? <coughs> they're probably man-made. They're probably, some of them are ours, some of them probably not ours. And there have been experimental aircraft designs in the past. Things that don't quite look like aircraft. How can that fly? They said about the Spruce Goose. So experimental aircraft are, are nothing new. Spielberg continued, I, be I don't believe we're alone in the universe. I think it's mathematically impossible that we're the only intelligent species in the cosmos. I think that that's totally impossible. At the same time, it also seems impossible that someone would visit us from 400 million light years from here, except in the movies, of course, unless it figures out some way of jumping the shark, so to speak, and getting here through wormholes. Hey, he's got an interesting point. <coughs> now, for me, personally, I don't believe that there are any extraterrestrial life. I think we're it. Because it's a it's it's a it's a faith thing. It's a biblical thing. Now you could talk about you know the various different mentions of of powers and principalities, but those those scriptures are talking about supernatural, uh, not in the physical world uh, powers and principalities. You know, angels and demons and that sort of thing. They live on a completely different plane of existence. I don't believe that there are any extraterrestrials. I think humans are it. <clears throat> Continuing here. But while Spielberg isn't convinced that anyone in the universe has figured out faster than light travel, he's more open to the idea that humans may have figured out time travel. Here's where it gets interesting, folks. <coughs> now, he's doing this interview with Colbert over on The Late Show. 
He presented Colbert with his own theory that the UFOs we're seeing are actually humans visiting us from the future. Quote, the most optimistic thing I feel about these things we see in the skies that the Army and Navy and Air Force are recording on their gun cameras is that what if they're not from an advanced civilization 300 million light years from here? What if it's us, 500,000 years in the future, that is coming back to document the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st century because they're anthropologists and they know something we don't quite know yet that has occurred and they're trying to track the last hundred years of our history. Well, it's a theory, I guess. I the physics of time travel have yet to be cracked, and I don't. I don't know that we'll ever get get it to crack. Hey, we've got a comment over in the chat on Twitch. It is a spam comment trying to get us into Dogecoin. All right, hold on here. I'm going to, where can I do here? What can I do with this? What can I do with this? I need moderators in my Twitch chat, I guess. Uh... I'll mess with it later. Oh, here we go. Um, no, how do I do this? It's been so long since I've been in, uh, been in uh, Twitch. I'm not sure where all my tools are. But anyway, I am not into. Uh, I am not into crypto going. So I've had snipes, uh, that's why they sent me, but you can't time travel like that. Cam says time travel without space travel would be insta-death. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these days, I think we might possibly crack faster than light space travel. Maybe. And I don't think it's going to involve wormholes. I, I would I would think that, you know, some kind of of warp bubble thing, whatever, I'm not sure. I mean, you have to get over the relativist the relativity stuff. Because otherwise wherever you travel, you're going to end up, you know, your your calendar is going to be off by a little bit. <clears throat> Keely says, I'd love to travel back into the past, but I don't want to bring COVID with me. Well, you know, there's, uh, there's a vaccine for that. <laughs> That's what I hear. All right, so there are some other developments. Uh, last, what was it, a week? How long ago did we do this? We talked about the rolled doll thing. Back on, let me look here. Back on February 20th, we talked about this. The Roll Doll edits. And, yeah, Cam, incoming Google context warning. <coughs> so on uh, February 20th, we talked about Roll Doll, uh, Penguin, uh, uh, Puffin Books, doing an edited version of Roll Doll books that made them more politically correct and acceptable to those Twitter Sandinistas. That need uh, that need safe spaces, and that's I have coined that phrase. I have coined that word. That's my word. Twitter standinistas. Uh, 
Everybody calls about Twitter stands. I'm calling them Twitter stands and eatses. Blue-haired, emotionally constipated, checkmark. You know the the the. Let me. Emotionally constipated, blue-haired, checkmark, Twitter, te- Twitter stand Denise. There we go. <clears throat> emotionally constipated, blue hair, blue checkmark, Twitter stand Denise. I, I got to practice it a few times, but that's gonna eventually it's gonna just roll off my tongue. Twitter stand Denise. Now, last week <clears throat> we had the story about them going after James Bond. James Bond books edited to remove racist references. I don't know how you how you change James Bond stuff. Uh, reissued versions. This is the Telegraph. Reissued versions of Ian Fleming's classic works will feature a disclaimer following a review by sensitivity readers. <clears throat> I'm gonna guess what color hair they have. So there's there's that headline. <clears throat> and while we're talking about the James Bond books getting revised. There's also the Goosebumps stories getting revised. Only are they? Uh, maybe. But R.L. Stein says he doesn't have anything to do with that if they're happening. Oh, really? <clears throat> this is the headline. Goosebumps author sets record straight on historic edits. This is from March 7th. <clears throat> updated just two hours ago, so it's fresh. This is the NewDaily.com in Australia. Uh, Ash Kant, the reporter. The author of the fame... Should I read it in an Australian accent? I don't think so. <clears throat> the author of the famed Goosebumps series has been accused... See, if I read it in an Australian accent, I would be accused of trying to appropriate Michael Bancroft's culture, and I don't want to do that. The author of the famed Goosebumps series has been accused of bowing to the woke culture after it emerged some of his hit children's books have been sanitized. Last week, Britain's Times newspaper revealed some of R.L. Stein's books have been sanitized to use more inclusive language and change or omit phrases related to mental health, weight, or ethnicity. Writers' self-censoring includes changing plump to cheerful and crazy to silly, the Times reported. <clears throat> Came just days after the controversy over a publisher's planned edits to some Roald Dahl's best-known books. Other media outlets seized on the story, implying Stein was involved in the Goosebumps revision. But that wasn't the case, according to the author himself. Responding to outraged fans on social media, Stein has said he, repeatedly that the reports are wrong. Quote, the story is false. I have never changed a word in a Goosebumps book, he said on Tuesday in a response to fan who pleaded with him to leave the books alone. And here it is right here on Twitter. This is R.L. Stein. The story is untrue. I have never changed a word in a Goosebumps book. <clears throat> In another tweet, he insisted that any proposed edits had never been shown to him. Now, this is where the story gets interesting for me. Not the fact that we're making changes to the book, because, you know, bingo card, of course they are. What gets me right now, 
with this particular story is not the fact that they're making the changes. It's the fact that they're making the changes behind the author's back while the author is still alive. Now, Roald Dahl can't defend Roald Dahl's work. Ian Fleming cannot defend and protect Ian Fleming's work. J.R.R. Tolkien can't defend and protect Tolkien's work. Christopher did it. Christopher's dead. And the rest of the family doesn't care. Which is why we have the Rings of Power. <clears throat> but this story here, where R.L. Where Stein's Goosebumps books are being changed without his knowledge or involvement while he's still alive, that, to me, is highly unethical. At the very least, if you're going to change the work of an author that you publish, then you are required. I would say you're obligated ethically to let him know. Hey, Mr. Stein, we got this thing here we want to try. What do you think? Could you Do you want to take a crack at it first? At the very least, give him right of first refusal. Hey, we've got some. We've got some complaints. We got some. We got some people in a department over here thinking maybe we ought to do a different version of this. Maybe do an update. What do you think? Do you want to take a crack at it first, or do you want to just let us do it? After the last month and a half, if you do not have a no change clause in your contract, authors, authors, I'm talking to you, independent authors traditional publishing authors, anybody, if you're writing a book or if you're writing a comic book, any anything that involves a contract, you had better put a no-change clause in those contracts. <clears throat> Continuing here, the Times did reference several changes to Goosebumps books, but pointed out they were made in 2018 as part of an ebook re-release Publisher Scholastic has confirmed the older edits. Quote, For more than 30 years, the Goosebumps series has brought millions of kids to reading through humor with just the right amount of scary, the statement said, according to Deadline. Scholastic takes its responsibility seriously to continue bringing this classic adolescent brand to each new generation. Reimagined for the modern world... <clears throat> When reissuing titles several years ago, Scholastic reviewed the text to keep the language current and avoid imagery that could negatively impact a young person's view of themselves today with a particular focus on mental health. <laughs> okay. I I could I could see there you could make an argument for updating language as far as, you know, kids these days are going to read a story and they're never going to know what a payphone is, for example. They're never going to know what a pager is. Mrs. Boss posted over in the in the Discord server the other day a photograph uh, from, she got from, uh, was that Eric that said it? From her brother. <clears throat> Her brother sends her this saying they found. What did they find that in a landfill? They were doing uh, something at 
near a construction site. They're doing near a construction site. They found an old pager, a little pager. Some of us who are of an age know what a pager is. Ask your parents. And these younger people that are on site had no idea what it was. And I can say, well, and Cam, that's a good point. What's wrong with a period piece? What's wrong with learning about history? And that's, that's the flip side of it. But we know that the current state of the education system is such that kids are not going to learn history. <clears throat> Matuine, wonder if they've changed anything in Mein Kampf yet. Uh, that's a good question, isn't it? That 70s rock fan, good morning, sir. For those of you who are, are not aware, I was on with that 70s rock fan, what was it, a week ago? Talking about uh, the three-body problem over on Pop, uh, Pop Culture Minefields channel. I think I've got that right. <coughs> that was fun. We'll need to do it again. Continuing here from this article. Stein has since been embroiled in accusations of being a sellout and woke. Some even claimed he was forced by a woke mob to make the changes. He was also accused of censorship for changes he never made. <coughs> so this is, this is the thing. Why would you make those changes to begin with without the author's involvement. I, you know, Roald Dahl himself, you talk about the Roald Dahl stuff, Dahl had made some changes to his own material back in the day, but he made those changes to his work. It's like George Lucas goes back and makes changes to his work, but we're all upset that Disney's making changes retroactively to George Lucas's work because... George Lucas isn't involved. It's disrespectful to the creator, owner, person who what founded the work to make those sweeping changes that now alter the work to the point where you don't recognize it. Now, maybe that's happening with these, maybe not. But you're changing a bunch of stuff with regard to the, uh, the work of these authors. And, you know, it's... It's wrong. <clears throat> yeah, and Cam's right. There's nothing wrong with a period piece. Somebody walks, you know, to, writes, reads a story, and they run across a mention of a payphone. Somebody can sit there and go, hey, Grandma, what's a payphone? Because you know that's coming. I see Eastland in the chat. Good to see you. Haven't seen you in a while. Good to have you back. Sean in the chat as well. Uh, Matuins is so roll doll offensive, mouse okay as is, and kids should read it as is. Got it. Yeah, pretty much. <clears throat> well, yeah, Sci-Fi Snob says, I'm kind of mad Lucas made the changes Han shot first. Agreed. There were, and, and I'm not saying that Lucas was right to make those changes. I'm saying Lucas had the right to make the changes. Not necessarily that it was a good idea. I get what he was doing because he didn't have the budget to do what he wanted to do in the first place. But at some point, it becomes a fixed thing. It becomes an immutable object. you got to leave it alone. And do something else. And, you know, Lucas himself even said at some point, it's not finished. It's just abandoned. 
it's time to do something else. It's time to move on. Quit, quit trying to change things all the time. That's one of the reasons why we're in the state that we're in with all of these live-action remakes of animated pictures and all these reboots. And these re I saw somebody's doing a remake of Fatal Attraction as a series. I barely recognize Joshua Jackson. He's in the Michael Douglas role. He's gained a lot of weight. Probably for the role. I would think that it's for the role. But why are we remaking everything? Why are we revising things? Why are we going back? Why do we keep looking back? If you walk forward with your head turned backwards, you're going to run into something. You're going to hit a wall or a street or something. Yes, Joshua Jackson of Dawson's Creek. He is in the Michael Douglas role in the Fatal Attraction series that's coming out. I don't recognize the woman in the, in the Glenn Close role. <clears throat> Hollywood has no original ideas. You've got that right, Snob. Oh, that reminds me. It's a good place for me to bring this up. I'm going to uh, I'm going to set this uh, in the pile for the next money uh, for the next money episode. But I do want to just briefly uh, briefly bring it in here real quick because it relates to uh, Mr. Snob's comment, kind of. This is Hollywood Reporter. Theater chains to studios. Please send us more movies. <coughs> this is today. After a dismal earnings season, exhibitors hope that if studios can ship them 100-plus features and some streaming titles too, this year won't be a bust. Now remember, coming up in April, I believe the April 5th weekend, we've got uh, CinemaCon which is where The Flash is going to scream for the first time. This is the convention of all of the different theater chain owners. Um, and so, you know, there's all these presentations from the studios, not just screenings of films, but presentations. Kind of, It's kind of like an upfront. If those of you who are familiar with the upfronts for network television, network televisions get together and they bring in all of the advertising people and the network will make their upfront presentation, which is, here's all the shows that we've got, and here are all these stars that we're going to do, and here's all these specials we're going to do, and advertise your product with our network. CinemaCon is the same kind of thing. It's basically the studios come in to all the theater owners and say, here are all these different movies that we're going to put out. Please book these movies in your theater. Let's make a deal. And this is where they start striking the distribution deals for these movies to hit theaters nationwide, worldwide. So we're going to get a screening of The Flash on April the 5th. And I imagine sometime April the 5th into the 6th, we'll start getting reactions to The Flash. But other, other films will screen, other presentations. Will, that's not part of Warner Brothers' presentation. They've got a whole separate thing that they're going to be doing. Disney will do one. Paramount will do one. Sony will have theirs, uh, uh, Universal, all, all of the different studios will have their presentations. <clears throat> but the theater companies are sitting there going, we need product. It's kind of like what the, what the local comic shops are going to start looking at, because if Funko is going to dump $30 million worth of product into the, into the landfills, the local comic book shops are going to be hurting because they don't have any product to sell. So from this article, after a disappointing late summer and fall, 
Major movie theater chains pinned hopes on a run of tent poles that could help prop up the box office and their bottom lines. From Black Adam to Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and Avatar The Way of Water. But one by one, in reporting fourth quarter earnings in February and early March, the top chains all posted revenue that fell short of even the comparable quarter in 2021 when the industry was in the thick of the pandemic. While the impact of The Way of Water, the $2.2 billion grocer that opened December 16th, won't fully be felt until exhibitors report first quarter results in the spring, the fourth quarter numbers aren't encouraging. That's especially so when studio executives from Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav to Paramount Global Chief Bob Bakish have touted the important flywheel effect of launching their tent poles in theaters instead of sending them directly to streaming services to pump up subscriber numbers. Now, this this has been a thing. This has been discussed. Now, Zaslav was one of the first ones that sit there and said, we're going to decide where to put our stuff that makes us profit. It's not just, we're not going to spend, we're not going to dump a bunch of money into a streaming service if it doesn't make economic sense. And when he was the first one to do it, everybody went, how dare he say that? But he's right. The studio executives at all of the studios, not just Warner Brothers Discovery, but the studio executives have to determine where it makes the most financial sense for these things, what they're making, and what kind of distribution deals they get. Does it go direct to streaming? Does it go to the theaters? Does it go to TV? Does it go to cable? Direct to DVD? I mean, you you have to make these decisions in a way that maximizes profit. That's the goal. Uh, MS says part of the problem is Hollywood's business model. When CGI got better and the summer blockbuster became a thing, Hollywood became like a tourist town or a ski town. Make all your money during the peak time. I Yeah, that an argument can be made for that. But I think also the fact that, again, this goes back to that whole Hollywood learns the wrong lessons. You have these blockbuster tentpole bajillion dollar budget movies and then Hollywood figures that's all they can make. You know, I want to. I want them to make twenty million dollar pictures, ten million dollar pictures, fifty million dollar pictures. Not every movie has to have a two hundred and three hundred million dollar budget. Make some smaller stuff, and crank them out, man. In the in the thirties and forties and fifties, you know how many how many movies the studios were making a year? Lots. I mean, the studios were making hundreds of films a year. In the 40s. So over here, let's see. Domestic box office revenue down 22% from 2019. Let's see what's going on here. Let's... uh, Where... AMC Theaters, which operates 950 theaters globally, saw attendance hit 49.5 million, down from 60 million during the year earlier period, as its quarterly loss increased to 287 million dollars. Uh, they're saying, and basically, they're saying, get us, get us stuff, get us, get us material, because not only did the did the do the theaters make money on their box office. Because they split the gate with the studios. And that's a graduated thing. 
uh, it's at one point the studios make X percent and the theater makes X percent and you know Y percent, and then those numbers fluctuate. The longer the movie is in theaters, that ratio changes. So the theater will make some money off of the box office receipts. The studio makes the rest of it, and the theater actually makes more. You know, their money is in the concessions. The studio didn't get any any part of that, but the studio and the and the theater has to split the gate. So they have to they have to take the box office receipts and they have to you know studio gets their part, theater gets their part, and whatever is left over in the in the concession sales that's the theaters that's the theaters money. <clears throat> this is uh, CEO Sean Gamble of Cinemark, I believe, on a call with analysts. He says, uh, studios are looking at some of the other films they had originally been contemplating for streaming platforms and considering if those could be released theatrically instead. Uh, credit, now remember, uh, Cinemark, no, it's Regal. Regal owner Cineworld is in, ba- is in bankruptcy court. <clears throat> so, I mean, mo- the movie theater business is a mess. So we get into some of this, but basically the theater companies are sitting there saying, hey, we need more movies on our screens so we can stay in business. We need more product on our shelves so we can stay in business. Just, I think, I, who, who was it? It was Eastland, you know, says, watch old stuff. I'm perfectly fine. You want to re-release Ghostbusters into the theaters. If you want to re-release Batman 89 into theaters, why not? I mean, you might have to edit it for some sensitive readers. Change some language for the modern era. Except you got to be careful because certain things, certain things, if you're reading or if you're watching, could make you all right. This is a Daily Caller headline reading, The Lord Lord of the Rings in 1984 could lead to right-wing extremism, government report warns. (sighs) Cam, Cam, you got it. Yeah, comment of the day. Can can we all just admit that the modern viewer is a bedwetting little twerp? (laughs) Twitter standing Easter, I tell you. Author, this is from the article here, Kay Smith, uh, Kay Smith writing February 16th. Author Douglas Murray <coughs> published a scathing review of the British government's counterterrorism prevent program, which has apparently reported that authors like George Orwell, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis can radicalize readers. In his column, Murray described how Britain's Prevent program was founded to support counterterrorism efforts, but has gradually swayed into a focus on only extremists from Islam as, and far-right ideological mindsets. He evidenced this claim by citing that Prevent was consulted by activist groups such as Hope Not Hate, which he argues believes that people who voted for, for Brexit and are against illegal immigrants are far-right. He further noted that Prevent's Research Information and Communications Unit has previously listed historical texts as red flags. Essentially, if someone is reading 1984 or works by Lewis Tolkien, Aldous Huxley, or Joseph Conrad, 
they should be suspected of being a far-right extremist terrorist. Murray's own book was on the list. Okay, um, I have a copy of 1984 on the shelf. It's it's right, it's right in, it's right in there. <clears throat> I don't know if you can see it there, but it's 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 in that cabinet. <coughs> I have Tolkien, I have C.S. Lewis, I have uh, I have George Orwell. Eastland says, I want a job as a sensitivity reader. I hate orange clothing. I would ban it or edit it out. There you go, right? I've been reading a book, and I'll mention this, and then we'll take a real quick break. I've been reading a book, The Naked Communist, and it is an examination of the theories that Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels put forth that basically leads to uh, Marxism, socialism, communism, that kind of thing. And a lot of what I'm seeing these days is uh, it, it's it can it can easily be labeled cultural Marxism. There is a thing called dialectics, dialectics, basically saying that there's only two choices, one or the other, this or that. And, you know, it's where we get the whole oppressor versus oppressed or the, you know, the, the proletariats and the bourgeoisie and, and that sort of thing. There, there, you have these two conflicting polar opposite positions. You don't have options. You don't have a, multiple, a multitude of choices. You just have two. You have this or that. And I read a lot of this behavior and a lot of this stuff. If, if you're reading 1984, then you must be. Alt right. If you're, if you believe that a certain thing happened in a certain country that was spread around the rest of the certain world, then you must be alt right or something. You know, it's this. You know, if you're not with us, you're against us type thing. It's, it's this us versus them, and this is the kind of thing that gets us sanitized Roald Dahl, sanitized James Bond, sanitized R.L. Stein. Who's next? Because there will be a next. If we don't push back about this stuff, if we don't draw the line, the line must be drawn here, this far, no further. This will continue to keep going. This, this will continue. And we have to push back. We have to sit and business owners, you're going to be at the forefront of this because how many times have those Twitter standinistas been calling up and say, you need to fire this person. You need to fire this person. We just had it with a, with a gaming company here not too long ago. Do you know what your community manager posted six years ago on Twitter? Oh, well, we, uh, so, uh, we get the vapors and we got to fire this person. Crowdfunder just had a conversation with Chris Brawley and, and confirmed, if you're with Comicsgate, we don't want your money. Crowdfunder is the latest. The, the guy, the guy who are running Crowdfunder is a coward. 
Here's an article here from Fox. Sacramento Pub apologizes after Antifa condemns it for showing Harry Potter video game footage. <gasps> my safe space has been violated. I need my safe space. Please give me my safe space. Cowards. Bullies. <coughs> All of them. And if you disagree with them, you get name called. You get, you, you're the bigot. You're the homophobe. You're the racist. You're the sexist. And I would dare say that the guy what in charge of crowdfunder, and he's not in charge. He's got to answer to a board or whatever. I would imagine he probably did not do any due diligence. Now, tomorrow on the program, Luke Stone's going to be here. He's just launched a new crowdfunding platform called Fund My Comics. Uh, it's going to be a pre-recorded thing, but I imagine we'll be talking about the crowdfunder bit because Indiegogo's gone the same way. Kickstarter's gone the same way. There's censorship everywhere. There's revisions everywhere. And... You've got some some weird, stupid stuff that's going on, and I want to talk about one other thing happening when we get back. Uh, we're going long today, folks. Strap in. Stand by. Klaatu, barara, nikto. You are now under the influence of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. It's like, what? okay, hold on. You've got somebody... And all he does is put on some glasses and slicks back his hair, and nobody knows who he is. Nobody recognizes him. It's it's it's, it's like that that uh, that scene in, in the Green Lantern movie where she looks at him and it's like, how? You know, it's like you just put on a mask and you expect me not to recognize you. The H two O podcast Monday night at eight only on Sci Fi for Me TV. Good morning, Multiverse. Saturday morning at 11, 10 Central, only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. It helps to turn the volume back up on the bumper music. All right, we're back live from the bunker. I'm not. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I do want to. I do want to focus on this a little bit. Now tonight on the H2O podcast, Mr. Harvey and I actually have a topic already picked out. We're going to be talking tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, projects, film and TV, and some story story things that didn't quite live up to their potential. So we're going to be talking about that tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central. But let me let me go in here. We talked about, you know, Warner Brothers making decisions based on, you know, their financial stuff. And then, you know, we talk about the Batgirl thing and stuff getting canceled. This one came over the transom yesterday. I was not aware of this. I don't know that anybody was aware of this. And... I don't know the validity of it. This is being posted to Twitter, so take it with a grain of salt. But Ryan Estrada, uh, who has a blue check mark, he is an Eisner and Ringo nominated author, Scholastic, Star Trek, King Features. So, you know, he's he's not just some random 
trust me bro off the street. But he's posted to Twitter here, he says, an entire completed Scooby-Doo movie that HBO Max trash binned for a tax write-down has leaked on archive.org and not even the trash binned complete Scooby-Doo movie we knew about. How many people's work and royalties have been destroyed? Future contracts better address this. Now, he's got a point that contracts, and usually contracts do have some kind of pay pay or play type of clause, especially if the lawyers are good at negotiating things. There's usually some kind of a pay for play thing. But I want you to take a look at this photograph. Those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, come back to the video at the... 51-minute mark. And take a look at this photograph here. This is Velma, the real Velma, Shaggy and Scooby. And there's Crypto, the super dog, right there in the middle of them. And, excuse me, what is this project? What is this film? Because standing next to Velma looks like Lex Luthor. How did this, how, how, how were we not aware of this project's existence? What is this? I'm curious now. They say it's on archive.org. Who knows how long it'll be there. But this is Lex Luthor and Crypto the Superdog from DC Comics with Velma, Shaggy, and Scooby. Zoinks, I say. Yes, it is the real Velma, not the other Velma. Not the not the Mindy Velma. Not the Kaling Velma. What do we call that universe? Well, it's happening to it's happening to April O'Neil now. She's getting the Velma treatment, and there's a lot of discussion online about whether or not April O'Neil was originally black. Way back in the day, in the beginnings of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We got the trailer. We got the teaser from Seth Rogen for the new thing. And it looks like they're using the same kind of animation style as Into the Spider-Verse. Which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that animation style. Go for it. Okay, fine. Voice talent looks to be fairly solid. They're talented performers. But this keeps coming up about April O'Neil. Now, there has been a cartoon version, uh, I believe like 10, 15 years ago, where April was black in a, in a particular animated iteration of this stuff. But historically, April O'Neil has been white. Most of the time, she's been a redhead. And this debate... Back and forth. I don't know why. Eric July has done a video on this. Several other people have done done videos on this. I think Flash, Yellow Flash has done something. There have been there have been a number of different people talking about this. But this is uh, this is an article tmntentity.blogspot.com. This is an article called "Was April O'Neil Originally Black in the Mirage Comics?" Spoiler: No, she wasn't. Now, Mirage Comics. This goes back to the very first version of the Ninja Turtles. The original stuff. The black and white pages. <clears throat> and they go through with a lot of documentation and a lot of historical uh, context. 
This is how April O'Neil looked originally. And you put her right next to, what's his name here? Uh, Baxter Stockman. Now, Baxter Stockman is going to be played by Giancarlo Esposito in the new cartoon. And you can see here that Baxter Stockman is most definitively, he, he, is, he is obviously black. April O'Neil standing right next to him is white as a ghost. She is not black in these, in these pages here. Whereas Mr. Stockman is. Obviously. And this, there's been debate back and forth and, and whatnot. But there's even, you know, you even go back into, you know, color samples later. They're talking about, you know, here's the cover to, uh, to one of them. She's, she's a redhead. She's not black. I don't understand why there's such a debate over this. Because those of us will remember a time where women of all ethnicities had a thing for getting a perm in their hair. A permanent, you know, really tight curls and stuffs. This was a fashion thing. It was not a cultural appropriation thing. This is still April, but this is not a black April. This is April with a perm. This is, you know, here's, here's Cher, the same kind of hairstyle. Cher's not black. Here's Sigourney Weaver. This was a thing back in the 80s, folks. Um, there was another one here. Now, here's, here's a representation of a black April O'Neil from a non-canon one-shot guest guest artist type stories that had nothing to do with it but if you look at the original artwork she's not black she was colored black and then in the second printing she's not black but this is a non-canon story i just it, you know, and and here's a photograph of the woman on which April O'Neil was based. Kevin Eastman was dating her at the time. She's mixed race, according to all of the reports. And originally, according to that, I'll, I'll put a link to this uh, to this particular art, uh, article in the notes. According to that, uh, according to those stories, April O'Neil was originally conceived as an Asian woman. She was named after an African-American woman named April. But April O'Neil has never been black in the, in the canon of the story. You know, you've got these one-shot. Now, it wasn't until later animated stuff where she did. But this, this article does a fairly extensive uh, deep dive into the research and the background on all, all of this controversy, all of this, all of this stuff. Rise of the TMNT animated series from Nickelodeon is the only official black version of April. Until now. When we get this, <coughs> I don't know, potato looking thing. 
it's just, why are we doing this? Why, why are we doing this to ourselves? Why is our, why is our, our culture degenerating into this kind of thing? I just, This is the new April O'Neil, ladies and gentlemen, right here. This is what she looks like. Frumpy, overweight. I mean, is this a crossover with Vilma? Well, what is this? It might be perfectly fine. From a story standpoint, from an animation standpoint, I mean, okay. That's fine. They may tell a good story. They may entertain uh, more than anything else. You never know. There's there's potential. There's always the possibility. But why make this change to April O'Neil? Again, with the ginger side. Again, you have a redhead being replaced by a black person. For no discernible reason... No discernible reason. I mean, why? What's the purpose of this? Side by side says, because some people hate themselves and they want the rest of us to be as miserable as them. Maybe. Uh, Robert says, this is CRT in universities for 50, 50 years. I think that has something to do with it. I think uh, I think that's... But also, see, consider the fact that that's with diversity, inclusion, and equity going out, you know, it's diminishing in popularity. It's dwindling. We're having some pushback. We're having some people say, you know, this is not going to be... Now, we're moving on. The World Economic Forum now saying that it's even more important to belong. Okay, fine, whatever. And the rewriting of history, you know, all of these people say, well, April started off as a black person. No, she didn't. No, she didn't. And Ben Sisko did not start off as a non-binary character. Now, I, I talked about this article briefly last week. <coughs> and the, the language in this, in this article makes you think it's going one way when it's actually talking about other things. We talked about earlier the Marxist theory about having just one or the other option. Cisco is the anti-Marxist option. He's always looking for a third option. He's always looking for other ways to do things other than just black or white. Where's, where are the various different shades of gray? But it's couched, this article is couched in language that really kind of skews into... gender performance language stuff because it's you know this is again talking about somebody's mental health and how deep space nine gave me some place where i identified with people and i could this was my safe space you know ds9 was my safe space and cisco was the hero because he wasn't just this or that he was shades of gray okay fine but you don't make that to mean non-binary. There's a lot of stuff in this article about the diversity and the representation and all this other stuff. 
Cisco was not a non-binary character in the sense that, that a lot of people use that word now. Because non-binary, again, we come into changing the language. The corruption of the language has become such that words don't mean what they've always historically meant. Non-binary means a totally different thing now than it did in some circles. I know I'm standing. I'm probably not in picture. You're getting a bad. View. I'm not. I'm not throwing your camera up. That's All for right. sure. Um, no, I'm just saying non-binary. Non-binary doesn't mean that. Well, what dictionary are you looking at today? Because you know tomorrow it's going to say something else. It's not a. It's not a biologist bi a dictionary. That's for sure. Doesn't matter. Right. They're going to make it that way because when you think non-binary, you don't think of. Just saying. Just I. I just, you know. I'm just, <coughs> Snob says, everyone on Star Trek is non-binary except for the binars. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, Keeley says, I'm an old school liberal. I agree. Uh, you know, it's... It's... I, I don't know. I just, I, just, I just read this stuff and I'm thinking, where, where are the grown-ups? Robert Meyer Burnett went through this article last night on his channel. The New Atlantis, somebody po uh, 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 turned his attention to it. Alan Rome, this is New Atlantis. This is an Australian pr publication. The article, Sad Trek. I'm going to link to this one as well because I think this one's important too because it talks about Star Trek in various different phases. I'm not going to go through it all together because it's a very long article, but it's thorough. And I think it's accurate. There's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in here, analyzing why modern Star Trek is a dead husk of a shell of what Star Trek is and has been historically. Uh, the sad Trek is the headline of the subhead: How an exhausted liberalism killed sci-fi's sunniest franchise. And he goes in here, talks about the nihilism that we see in stuff like Star Trek Discovery and the more recent stuff. Now, Strange New Worlds, not so much. The animated stuff, not so much. But Discovery especially, because Discovery is the one that brought Star Trek back, right? And you had the J.J. Trek reboots and whatnot. There's no optimism. There's no sense of hope. There's no sense of let's go improve ourselves. I'm I'm paraphrasing and distilling down the, the core of this article. Basically talking about it. When you look at Star Trek, you look at the phase one of Star Trek, the original series and the and the and the early movies, and you look at the next generation era, next generation DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, those shows in in the eighties and nineties, that's phase two. And then you look at now phase three, whatever whatever this current thing is now. Every example of Star Trek prior to this one has been an example of humanity striving to better themselves. You know, it's a post-scarcity world, remember that, but we're always looking for, you know, strange new worlds, new life and new civilizations, right? New discoveries. We're looking to learn new things, right? Having new experiences and encounter new life forms and, and, and make ourselves better as humanity. Whereas you get 
discovery. And you have a Kelpian having a temper tantrum and destroying the Federation. Dumb. You have Picard, which is objectively terrible, except for season three. Season three is pretty good, but comparatively speaking, season three is great compared to seasons one and two. It's almost a completely different show. Uh, and yes, Cam, I saw uh, I saw Axanar. Um, I I saw the prelude to Axanar. That's all he's ever finished. Oh, get me started on Axanar. I, I, uh, yeah. I didn't put any money into it, and I'm glad I didn't. Usually I don't. See, this is, this is the crux of my problem. As a media person, I find it very difficult to, uh, to justify putting money into crowdfunding projects because if I'm going to be reporting on it, this is, this is what Gamergate was all about, right? I, I want to be able to be objective if I'm reviewing something or if I'm, if I'm reporting on something. And Cam, I don't know that they've filmed anything new. We've seen some stuff, maybe, but most of what we've seen has been CG stuff. I don't think I don't think he's ever going to finish it. I don't think we're ever going to see any kind of completed Axonar project ever. Axonar is Axon. I I don't. I don't want to say that Axanar was a scam, but you would not have a tough time convincing me that it was. I think that Alec Peters has probably done more harm to the fan film community, for lack of a better word. Um, Space Command was former... Space Command finished... I've seen Space Command. I've seen a two-hour movie of Space Command. Where is Axanar? I've seen Space Command. I watched it the other night. He's on his, what, fourth or fifth? I wouldn't call that one a scam. He took the money and he made a, he made a movie. He finished it. He put it out. People have seen it. That's not a scam. If you take the money and run and you don't deliver anything, that's a scam to me. But I think Alec Peters has done more harm to all of the fan film production realm than in anybody else has done. And yeah, you know, you take you take money and you spend that money on what you need to do for productions. These things are not these things are not not cheap. And even though it looks like something that was made back in the nineties, there's a certain amount of charm to it. <clears throat> I don't know how I think he's on his fourth he's raising he's raising money for forgiveness which I think is the second second he's right I think he's if I if I understand right and I need to get Mark on live from the bunker to talk about it I, I think I'm going to do that I'm going to reach out to him but because I interviewed him at the very beginning of all of this as I understand it just from reading the different crowdfunding models I think he's crowdfunding each one hour at a time. That's a guess, but I think he's I think he's crowd he's crowdfunding in pieces so that he can spread out the expense. Um, that's what it looks like to me. I don't know, but 
I know he's finished at least two hours. I think he's got forgiveness almost completely in the can. I think they're in post-production now for forgiveness, which would be the second one. And, look, however however much he's getting favors from people, Robert Picardo is not going to be cheap. Nichelle Nichols is not going to be cheap. Doug Jones, Farron Tahir, James Hong, they're not going to be cheap. you got to pay these actors. Even though it's a... Even though it's a small budget, there are still requirements, contractual requirements, that they have to be paid at least X amount for this kind of production. This is, this is, these are the, the SAG-AFTRA rules. Um, I even had to, to fill out paperwork to waive the fees because my, the budget on my, my romantic comedy feature my budget was so small that the SAG, I got, I got a waiver from SAG-AFTRA that I didn't have to pay them, you know, SAG minimums to my, to my cast. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to make the movie, which not too many people have ever seen. But SAG-AFTRA has contractual obligations built into the, into the contracts for actors that if your budget is a certain amount, then your actors get paid a certain amount. It's proportional. <clears throat> so you have to take that into consideration too. And if you've got a bunch of visual effects houses and these visual effects houses are all tied up doing Marvel work, you got to find somebody that can do it and you got to find somebody who's willing to prioritize your work over somebody else. And that's going to cost money too. So there, there's a lot of things I can see doing the incremental crowdfunding Let's pay for this part, and then we'll get to this part, and we'll do this part, and we'll do this part and that part. I know I know, Nichelle's not with us anymore. She shot this stuff before she passed. Come on, don't be silly. But she's in this movie. Uh, as is Mira Furlan, who's in this movie. Doug Jones is in. You know, you've got a lot of you've got a lot of recognizable talent here in front of the camera. So I can I can see, and Mark Zickery has has a history with Star Trek as well. He's written for Star Trek. <clears throat> so you're going to have talent that costs money, and I can see doing it incrementally, where you where you finance piece by piece and don't get yourself spread out too thin. So you know, I'm I'm looking forward to the second one. I was the first one is a good effort. It's not as good as I was hoping it would be. But it's not bad. It tells it tells an interesting story that begins things. It's a setup. <clears throat> so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what forgiveness looks like. Depending on how much money they've got, they may be able to have better effects. That's that's the biggest thing. But at least they're finishing. At least they're you know they're going through and they're finishing and they're completing their work. Star Trek Four doesn't look like it's ever going to happen. And Chris Pine wonders if the franchise is cursed. This is from Esquire magazine doing a big profile on him. And he's sitting there. He's waiting for the call for the next Star Trek movie. He doesn't think it's ever going to happen. But interestingly enough, in this article, he also says that he doesn't, necess he doesn't think that Star Trek necessarily needs to be a big $250 million blockbuster tentpole production either. Because it's got a niche audience. So we go down through here, and he says here, 
uh, talking about, you know, Star Trek being compared to other franchises. Quote, I'm not sure Star Trek was ever built to do that kind of business. Why aren't we just appealing to this really rabid fan group and making the movie for a good price and going on our merry way instead of trying to compete with the Marvels of the world? Excellent point. Where's my $40 million Star Trek movie? Where's the $50 million Star Trek movie? What was the budget for Star Trek II? Star Trek II is considered the best, among the best, and it was made by the television division of Paramount. They gave it to the TV people to make a feature film because the budget was so small. They said, all right, you're, you're the TV guys. You know how to work with smaller budgets. Make us a movie. The television division of Paramount Pictures made Star Trek II. And they didn't have a lot of money. They brought in Harv Bennett. They said, all right, make this, make this movie and don't make it expensive. Because Star Trek The Motion Picture was hugely expensive. But the reason why, a lot of people don't understand this, the reason why Star Trek The Motion Picture was so expensive in the end was because you factored in not only production of Star Trek The Motion Picture, but also all of the pre-production and development and the and the tests and the and the and the and the and the, the the props and the set design and the production of Star Trek Phase 2 all of those costs for making the new TV series that never happened all of those costs got folded into the cost of Star Trek the motion picture so that when Star Trek the motion picture was looked at it was hugely expensive but Nobody understands that it's not just that movie where money got spent. It's that movie at a TV show that never got made. All of that's lumped into that budget. And so the, the studio executives said, they're going, we can't spend that much on a Star Trek again. So they gave it to Harv Bennett and they gave it to the TV guys and they said, make us a movie, but not for very much money. And they did. And Star Trek II is one of the best, probably the best, Star Trek movie out of all of them. Death Angel Shadow says, Give me Klingons that don't look like orcs and other aliens that are bad guys and Starfleet prevails in the end. Picard Season 3, Worf looks like Worf. He looks like a Klingon. Worf, son of Moog. House of Martok. Son of Sergei, House of Rajinko. Bane of the Duras family, Slayer of Galron. <coughs> I made chamomile tea. That's a funny line. I mean, it is it is a great line. It just is. But Pine's right. Why does Star Trek have to be a $250 million picture? Answer, it doesn't. And I'm not sure that it's cursed by anything supernatural. It's probably cursed by people who don't understand what Star Trek is. They don't understand what Star Trek's about. They don't understand what makes Star Trek work. I mean, you can even see that in the marketing for Star Trek for Paramount+. Plus. Here is a picture. This is an ad. This is a promotion for Star Trek on Paramount+. Plus. And those of you who are listening to the podcast, you're going to have to go look. But there is somebody missing from this picture. 
this is a collage of various different characters from from across the franchise over the years. And I get it. The characters from your current productions are going to be in the middle. You see Mikey Spock there, Captain Picard, Captain Pike, Anson Mounts Pike. You got the animated shows. All of those are represented. I get it. You're going to put them in the middle. But where is Jim Kirk? Why is Captain James T. Kirk missing from this picture? I know why. But why is Jim Kirk missing from this picture? Janeway's there. Cisco's there. Archer's there. Picard's there. Burnham's there. All the captains are there. Pike's there. All the captains are there, except Kirk. Where is Jim Kirk? <coughs> I have a theory. It's a two-prong theory. First prong is they don't like William Shatner. Because William Shatner speaks his mind on social media and has not drunk the Kool-Aid of the, the, the woke cultists. Shatner just tells it like it is. Shatner's too old to care. Shatner doesn't give a rip if you like what he says or not. And he's William Shatner. What are you going to do? But the second thing is, they don't like Jim Kirk. Because what is Jim Kirk? Cowboy diplomacy, a girl in every port, is a misogynistic, sexist, patriarchy. That's not what kind of man we need right now, right? They don't like Jim Kirk because Jim Kirk reminds them of what they don't have anymore. Jim Kirk is a hero, yes, just like Death Angel Shadow says. He's a hero. He's a man's man. He's a leader. And not just some, you know, rootin' tootin' cowboy who doesn't think things through before he goes in and, and violates the prime directive. You go back and watch Star Trek, Jim Kirk thought a lot about what he was doing. Had conversations with Spock and McCoy and, and, and deliberated and debated. Not as much as Picard did. Picard could talk you to death before making some kind of a decision. Everything was in the conference room. We all had to, had to had have, a, have a committee meeting. But Kirk was a leader. <clears throat> Kirk was what we want men to be. Eh, sure, maybe he was a little more active with the ladies than maybe people might appreciate. But in the history of Star Trek... You do not have Star Trek without Jim Kirk. Because the pilot with Christopher Pike, Jeffrey Hunter as Christopher Pike, that pilot didn't sell to NBC. It was the Kirk show that sold to NBC, not the Pike show. And we wouldn't have today's Pike show without the original series with Jim Kirk. And you'll also notice that the reboot Trek 
is not on here either. Chris Pine's not on it. Zachary Quinto's not on it, which I'm fine with because that's a completely different universe. Kelvin Trek, whatnot. But where is Jim Kirk? This is indicative of the state of affairs at Paramount. Of course, Paramount, NBC, CBS, <clears throat> the networks, they've never understood Star Trek. Even from the beginning. You know who got Star Trek? You know who understood Star Trek? Lucille Ball. It was Lucille Ball who made Star Trek happen. It was Lucille Ball who got NBC to agree to put the money in for another pilot. Lucille Ball saved Star Trek. Facts. Where is Jim Kirk? <coughs> All right. We've gone long today. I had a lot to say. I will put links to this Sad Trek article and the uh, the Ninja Turtles, the April O'Neil article in the chat or in the uh, in the show notes, so you have those. I appreciate you hanging with us. This uh, is always always good to have people stick around when we're when we're doing all of this, and it looks like everything worked over on Twitch. So we'll see. Maybe we start. We'll start broadcasting to Twitch on a on a regular basis now. For for now, we'll see. Okay, that's it for us today. Tomorrow on the program, a recorded program. Luke Stone's going to be here. We're going to talk about crowdfunding comics. Uh, it is it is going to be pre-recorded because I've got to be someplace else tomorrow. And then on Thursday, Nadia Ififi will be here uh, in her second appearance on the show to talk about her third book uh, in a series that she's been writing. So she'll be here on Thursday. And then, of course, we've got Open Line Friday on, on Friday. Uh, H2O Podcast tonight. We've got uh, Ranker Pit on Thursday night. It's a busy week. So stick around. Make sure that you are tied in with all of our socials. Uh, we've got... Plenty to choose from. Too many. <coughs> uh, Pre-recorded on your last day of vacation, Death Angels. Well, you know, you can still continue the conversation over at Discord, whether whether we're alive or Memorex or not. So uh, join us over there for that. And uh, that's going to do it for us today, folks. Thanks very much for being here. I do appreciate all of you, all of you coming in and being here, whether you're subscribed or not. Uh, it's always good to have you here. Remember, the politicians hate you, the media lies to you, and there are four lights. This has been a presentation of SciFiForMe.com. Copyright 2023 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 